Hey, hey, welcome to the Wilds cast. You know, I would say my greatest joy and privilege in being an outreach rabbi are the people I meet. I absolutely love my students and the incredibly curious, smart, motivated young Jewish professionals who come to MJE. And uh, it's really what keeps me in the game all these years. It certainly isn't the uh, fundraising uh, or the other things I have to do to keep this place afloat. Not that I hate that, but uh, it's really my interactions with students. And every once in a while, there's a special student. I love all my students, of course. If you're listening to this and you're my student, please don't feel dissed. But, you know, every once in a while, there's that special student that comes in and it just clicks. You know, I'm a human being, so rabbis are people too, you know, and um, I try to be nice and have you know, to everyone and have relationships with as many people as possible. But, you know, there's uh, this chemistry. And I just felt from the moment that Daniel Wallach walked in on that Saturday morning, he showed up on a Saturday morning um, and he said that he was looking for more meaning and purpose in his life. And he wanted to know what does it really mean to be a Jew? So he went on Amazon, he got my book, and he read the book Friday night, and he showed up Saturday morning to the service about 15 minutes early, and he said, Rabbi, I read your book last night. I'm here to learn more. Teach me. He literally said those words. And I've been friends with Daniel Wallach for the last three-plus years since that fateful Saturday morning. He went off to Israel to study. After studying at MJE for about a year, year and a half, he went off to Israel to study in yeshiva, in a wonderful yeshiva called Machon Yaakov. And we stayed in touch. We got together when I came to Israel. We kept learning on the phone, Zooming each other. And he's a person that I just love to converse with and to learn from. There's a very important passage in the ethics of our fathers that more from all of my teachers, I've learned more from my students. And I've learned a great deal from Daniel Wallach. But we spoke about a couple of important issues. Number one, how to stay religiously and spiritually connected when you're not in a spiritually conducive environment. Right? Daniel was off in Israel in yeshiva, and just being in Israel, forget yeshiva, can be such a satisfying religious spiritual place to be. And coming to New York is great on many levels, but it could be challenging spiritually. So I thought that was a very important topic we discussed that could be relevant for a lot of our listeners. Also, the fear of people misunderstanding Judaism by teaching Kabbalah. Daniel has become very intrigued, as I have, by the writings of Kabbalah and Hasidut. And uh, he wants to know why it's not being taught more. Why are we not engaging in this more esoteric, mystical tradition if it's so attractive and there's so many young people interested in it? How come most Jews get like the classic rational kind of Judaism? Where is the mysticism? We spoke about that. And of course, he wanted to know what is really our goal or any outreach rabbi's goal? Is it to quote unquote proselytize and convert? Am I okay with people who come to MJE who don't seem to move religiously? They're just like being here, they're learning, but they're not becoming more religious. Do I view that as some kind of failure because they're, you know, coming, but they don't seem to be changing? And is that my ultimate end goal for everyone who comes here? So tune in, take a listen to a, uh, a teacher with a student. And sometimes it gets a little complicated who the teacher, who the student is. But uh, welcome to the Wildscast. And here's my dear friend and student, Daniel Wallach.
Rabbi, are you ready to dig in? I'm ready, man. Are you this ready to great. take I'm, risks? This is it, man. Are I'm, you ready to embrace curiosity? I've been dreading this for a long time. Are you ready to loot to lose your entire donor base? <laughs> <laughs> My donor base? <laughs> um, all right, if this is what intellectual curiosity means, you know, what am I willing to give up for it? It's all out on the table, Rabbi. Whatever is necessary to help you get to the next place in your spiritual life. <laughs> Good luck. We're going to be here for 10 hours. Right. And then some. Um, Rabbi, I might be helpful to uh, share with your audience who exactly I am. So just for those of you, um, I don't know how it's possible for someone to have lived under a rock for so long that it wouldn't know who you are, Daniel Wallach. But just in case, uh, Daniel um, is from Palo Alto, California. He is a uh, professional actor who teaches acting and um, someone I'm proud to call a friend and a student. Showed up at MGE a couple of years ago on a Saturday morning after having read my book and said, Rabbi, I'm here to learn more. And that's been our relationship. Daniel also went um, and spent the last two years studying in a wonderful uh, institution of Torah, a Torah learning uh, center in Israel, in Jerusalem, called Machon Yaakov. Uh, did amazing, amazing learning um, and spiritual growth in Jerusalem at Machon Yaakov. And um, it's really an honor and pleasure to know you. That's very kind. So you, you're admitting that I am MJ's star student. I am, I'm, I'm basically, I'm willing to take that responsibility. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Now it's true. I did wander into MGE one day, uh, in a couple of years ago, completely lost, um, curious about, uh, one question that was guiding me in my life. What does it mean to be Jewish? Um, and I came to MGE. I'd never seen a machitza in my life. I barely knew you were an Orthodox rabbi, um, and uh, I've the the truth is I came to MJ that day. Um, you know, we spoke uh, during Kiddush, um, and you know, I told you, gave you a little like three second zip of you know why I was there, how I got there that that day. I even I even brought a uh, I even brought a lunch that day because I, I didn't understand the concept of Kiddush. Um, you brought your own food, really? Yeah, yeah I had food. Because you weren't trusting of the kashrut. No, I, d- I didn't know that it was a thing to to have a have a little, like, you know, food afterwards or, you know. But but it, it didn't matter. I mean, that really demonstrates how far you were yeah. from Torah if you didn't realize that Jews would be eating after they prayed. And, you know, we spoke, uh, you know, very briefly. Uh, you, uh, you know, you locked in. You locked into Kirov mode. Um, and you brought me to your uh, beautiful home uh, that uh, Shabbos afternoon. Um, you know, I, I was dead tired because I was up till I was up till about four a.m. I finished your book and then showed up. You know, at you know nine o'clock. You know, a couple hours later, um, and uh, I was sitting there at the table and I was looking around. And the, the truth is that I was watching you. I was watching you at the table and. I was getting this very strong sense that this was a very, very happy man surrounded by his, you know, his beautiful family and then a table of students and friends in an environment of, of learning and growth together. Um, and it, it was a, it was a, um, it was an alarming moment of, again, 
dead tired, but I was, I was in the zone um, at that lunch. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I write pages every day. I write three pages a day. Um, and I wrote this down in my, in my, uh, uh, my pages that evening um, that I thought that this was a very happy man. Um, and I, um, I wrote down in my pages that evening that I thought that this would be my mentor, um, which is exactly what happened. We continued, a, um, we continued learning um, over the course of a couple of years. Um, and then you, um, you kicked me in the tuchus <laughs> and sent me off to Israel for two years. Um, I missed you. Um, I missed you. I'm exceedingly, incredibly proud of you, Daniel. I can't even look at you as I say that, but yeah. I really am. I did not pay him to say that. Um, so that is the, uh, the, short end, the, the short story for how we um, got together. So I thought a lot about how we should start a conversation. Yeah. And in the uh, biblical and Talmudic tradition, I want you to help me out with one of my dreams. Okay, so a couple nights ago, I wrote this down the next morning in my pages. I had a dream. I was in uh, New York City. And it was torrential rain. The streets were rivers of water. Um, like literally, like up to your knees or up to your stomach, rivers of, of water flowing through the streets. And I, this was a completely normal thing to people. I mean, there was very few people outside because it was raining, but it was a normal thing for people in, to be uh, wading through these rivers of water. And it, and it was murky and cold, and I was barely able to step forward, um, you know, mortified of these, this, these um, you, you know, these, this flooding. And then I started to push forward and I started to say the Shema. Um, I said the opening paragraph of the Shema, pushing through these, uh, these waters. Um, and for some reason, I don't know what it was. It was like, I need to, I need to, to hit the mark on this idea of the soul right now. I need to, I need to get to that point in the, uh, in the Shema. Um, and that was it. So, in the uh, biblical and Talmudic tradition, Rabbi, help me with my dream. You want me to interpret your dream? Yeah, I want you to interpret my dream. I want to know what you make of it. I, I, I'm, I, I don't really have the prophetic interpretive oh, on, dream Rabbi. powers of Joseph. Um, I mean, wading through the water, if I had to just conjecture, this is all it is, is conjecture. That's all I can give you. You know, waters, there is, um, there is a midrash that talks about what Abraham went through when he had to carry out the biblical command, well, the biblical, the divine command uh, to take his beloved son. And there's a midrash that teaches that the Satan, this, I guess, you know, the spiritual negative forces through all this water to keep him from getting to where he felt he needed to go. So it could be that, you know, you're, uh, you want to push forward in your life. You want to be connected to God. You're saying the Shema, but there are things that are keeping you from that. And, um, and that it could very well be that you, um, that those struggles and wading through those waters, and by the way, the fact that everyone around sees this as normal, could be that these, this is just, this is the way you are. This is the way you were raised. You, you were living... What's normal for you 
is for all of this Jewish stuff, for all of this spirituality, for the Shema, if you will, to be, you know, that, that, that's abnormal. What's normal is the water, is the stuff that's keeping you from getting to your spiritual destination, your relationship with Hashem. I, I mean, I can think of no greater symbol, you know, than the Shema, and no greater symbol of an obstacle, perhaps, than the water. Although, a different rabbi could interpret the water as being the actual goal. You understand? Because water represents Torah also. But, you know, the idea of you're wading through the waters to be able to say the Shema. I mean, you can but go not a torrential. Like torrential, right. It seems like these are waters, like Noah kind of waters, like, you know, flood waters. Not good waters, not like spiritual wellspring Torah waters, but a water that you have to kind of push through in order to get to your goal. But it's curious that everyone around is looking at the water as normal. Because what that says to me is, and this is a big issue, is that a typical person who comes to MGE, and I hate to throw you into this typical person. Are you saying that I'm typical? (laughs) You're not typical. But you're somewhat typical in this regard of someone who comes to MGE, and that is that what we're doing here is really not the norm, and that the way most people live in our society is the norm, even if it feels like in a dream, because now you're a different type of person, perhaps, that that's really what's sort of keeping you from getting to where you want to get in life. I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, that does. I... um just for your audience, I just came back from yeshiva, um, like just came back. Um, and it does resonate for me. Those were some of the ideas that I, I was cycling through when I woke up the other day. Um, you know, especially coming back to the States and this feeling that, you know, even the from world here, they're connected, but they're not, they're not as connected as, as at least my experience in Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're attached, but there's something, there's something, there, there's more of a relationship with mm-hmm. the, uh, with what attracts the secular world here today, with, um, with materialism, um, with focus on things that are day to day, and not much, I don't know, larger. And all those things exist in the firm world here, in my experience, for sure. But it's, the firm it's world, dial- by the way, is the orthodox world, yeah, I guess sorry. you're referring to. Yeah. But is that because you were in yeshiva? Do you think you would have felt that difference if you, let's say, were a, a regular working stiff living in Jerusalem, getting up and going to work every day? Or is because you were surrounded by, you know, when you're in yeshiva... Rabbi, are you accusing me of flipping out? No, I mean, well, you did flip out a bit. <laughs> a little, in a good way. Um, but did you, do, do you think that you... Um, do you think that's because you were in, you know, when you're in that environment, I met some of your friends and colleagues and teachers at the yeshiva. That's a very lovely, supportive group. Yeah. And they're all out for the same thing, which is a, a deeper relationship with God and with the Jewish people and Torah. So um, do you think because you came back and the people you're hanging out with now in America are not in yeshiva? Like, let's say you went up to yeshiva university, you went to some yeshiva you know, would it be more similar to the experience you had in Israel, or is it no? It's Jerusalem versus New York. 
I think that it's probably the case that I was in a yeshiva environment surrounded by people uh, focused in that period of time in their mm -hmm. lives on uh, nurturing their relationship with God. Um, and to be pulled from that environment mm -hmm. so immediately right. and forcefully um, was difficult. And in that period of time, I would have noticed things that, you know, that I did um, and cared about them more yeah. than, if I, than if I was working in Yerushalayim. Even so, I still think that there is a level of spiritual connection in that world. You know, you know, Rabbi, you're a passionate Zionist. You're a passionate religious Zionist. At least that's how you've described yourself. It's on the record now. So, uh, so this. So my guess is that that. You know, these, this kind of idea would make sense to you. Yeah, even if you weren't in yeshiva, I would argue from a purely Torah slash Zionist perspective, religious Zionism, you know, the Talmud says, Avira da'aretz machkim. The avir, which is the air, in the land is machkim, is conducive. Now, we know it's, it means spiritually conducive, but it doesn't say conducive for what. But the implication is, is that there's something in Israel, people feel this, not just at the wall that there's something that really pulls us, that connects us to our ancestors, our history, our Torah, God. Um, harder to feel it. And you might be feeling that now, coming back from your experience. A little um, spiritual withdrawals, if you will. But this is something that you've been focusing on, on as well in a different way. I mean, so, Rabbi, we have to, we have to get it right out in the open here. Mm -hmm. You are breaking the hearts of your rebellion, you're uh, both alive and and uh, no longer here. You have turned your the, focus. The, the, Hold on, let me finish. Yeah, okay. You've turned your focus. You are you are completely becoming Chassidish here. You're you're sitting down. You're learning and you're teaching the Tanya, uh, which we have which we have on the table for anyone who, who's listening. <laughs> Just happens to be. Just yeah. happens to be on the table. And you're growingly curious about a more ecstatic relationship with the divine, with God, with that which is larger than us, with the soul. Uh, more ecstatic, more emotional, perhaps, than what you were raised with. Uh, so why are you breaking your veins heart? Really? I, I don't know. Would I be? I mean, I guess I am breaking maybe my grandfather's. A blessed memory. He considered my father's father, Harry Wilde's a blessed memory, was a, a proud misnaged, uh, which means he belonged to this group of people that um, were very much opposed from the Hebrew word neged, against um, the, um, the Hasidim. And, um, but, I mean, I'll tell you why I've taken a deeper dive into Kabbalah and Hasidus. It's not because, I, I don't view my life before studying Kabbalah and Hasidus to be, you know, um, un... What was the word you used? Ecstatic. Ec yeah, ecstatic. What's the opposite of ecstatic? Um, rote? No, no, I'm yeah. sorry. Wait, no, wait. Mundane, no, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to hit anyone down who does not connect with 
uh, with Hasidish. Right. Um, I don't want to call anyone who doesn't, uh, you know, relate to Hashem in these very uh, emotional ways. They relate to Hashem in other kinds of emotional ways. They relate to Hashem through, you know, deep, 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 deep connection with the Gemara. Um, it's meaningful. It's passionate. It's different. It's a, it's it's um, it's you know it's different things going on in in the mind. It's different things going on in the soul. I don't want to hit anyone down who uh, um, takes a uh, more shall we say uh, Rabbi Penny says rationalist. Yeah. So approach. so here's the thing. I think that's the right word: rational versus mystical. Because I'm not. I don't. I don't think it's a good characterization to say I'm going from more intellectual to more emotional. Okay. That with that my more rational approach to Judaism, my more Maimodian, if you will, you know, focused on the medieval Jewish rationalists. And you do like the and you do like the Rambam. I love the Rambam, and if you look at most of the books that happen to be right here, like Sajigon and the Rambam and Kreskisk and some of the other great Jewish philosophers, they. Rabbi, I remember you at the at um, the Rambam Shul in um, I mean the Rambam's uh, kever in uh, in Yerushalayim because we when we got there uh, I was on the MGE trip I was um, Rabbi Wilds bullied me into it a couple of years ago um, and we were there and and you were just like oh, we're here at the Rambam Shul we're here at the Rambam kever um, I'm so excited I was very excited I mean the Rambam was but you have to understand like the the um... The Tanya here, which is the writings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, quote the Rambam a crazy amount. And I don't view, and I'm not switching over from the rational to the mystical. I'm just adding on to it, really. But And, and that's the book that I'm writing, this basic Judaism book. It's all coming out in the book because for so many years I was steeped in the rational approach to Judaism. And therefore I didn't really investigate so much the more esoteric, mystical teachings. And now I'm doing it, it's creating a lot of complications in the book. We can come back to the book. but So it's not because I didn't have an ecstatic, emotionally charged spiritual life before. It's that it was that without the mystical. And I'm looking for a little more of a deeper slash mystical explanation for human existence and for our reality than I think the more medieval Jewish rationalists like the Rambam and Kreskus had to offer. So I, I don't view it as going from intellectual to emotional. A lot of people look at like Hasidim, oh, they know how to dance nicely, you know, but they're not like the real Talmudic scholars. Oh, it's not really true. Uh, a lot of these Hasidic scholars, um, first of all, they're, they're, most of them are great Talmud scholars too. But even when they weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't lighter intellectually. They were just different intellectually. They were immersed in a different approach to Torah, which emphasizes the more mystical and esoteric. But as my teacher, Rabbi Grimlet of Blessed Memory, uh, used to say, you know, Kabbalah is an intellectual system onto its own. Um, So it's not like, yeah, I had enough of all that heady intellectual stuff. I'd rather just, you know, eat cholent, drink schnapps, and dance. Which is great, by the way. Yeah, I mean, you know. But um, but I will say there's a little of a warmth to it. And I don't even know how to put it. it there is just something about stunning Tanya and, 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 and having some schnapps, you know, drinking some scotch and um, making a l'chaim. It's, it, it is, there, there is some warmth to it somehow. But, yeah. Rabbi, you're, 
you're cutting yourself short. You're you've been getting deep into it. You, I I I was in your I was in your office space in um uh I don't know maybe a, a month ago. I uh, you were away, so I was I was I was in I was staying in for Shabbos. I picked up one of your one of the tiny books on your desk in my home. Yeah. Oh, in my office space. In yeah, my I home. broke in. Yeah, yeah you broke in. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I picked up I picked up one of your um one of your Tanya books. It was there was notes on every single page. There were you were you know there was underlines on you know here and there. You clearly been digging in deeply into this. So my question is, you know, with all of this study, how has this been affecting you on a day to day? Basis. So first of all, the uh, the digging in, I have to give my oldest son a lot of credit for this, you know, Yosef. Um, he became very much enchanted with Kabbalah probably when he was about 18 or 19, and he's been studying it. He's 25 now, and he's been studying it pretty seriously for the last bunch of years, and he got me into it. Um, and we study Tanya together. We've been studying probably three or four years, um, and it's changed... I just find it very, it's answering some questions that I've always had about God and about Judaism. It's answering them differently than I've been used to sort of the answers and, and the answers I've been giving my students all the years. And I want to give my students more and I want to grow. I'm 55. I've been doing this for a while, you know, um, my Torah can't stay the same because then I'll stay the same. And by definition, I'll just burn out. And I don't just mean burnout as a teacher, as a, you know, MGE director. I mean, I'll burn out in terms of my relationship with Hashem. I it needed to be deeper. Uh, and I'm not trying to imply that the Torah my teachers gave me and that I'm bringing great dismay to, you know, was not deep. It we was said breaking their hearts. Breaking their hearts, <laughs> yeah. excuse me. I'm not trying to imply that, um, that, you know, they failed, but most of them we're not steeped in this kind of wisdom themselves. Now here's the good news. The teacher of teachers, of all my teachers, and you know who that is. The Rav. The Rav, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Even though so much of his writings and what he's known for yeah. is the more rational, he was first of all an existentialist in his outlook. And if you look at existentialism, it's very much connected to certain aspects of Kabbalah and Hasidus, which is interesting. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on epistemology, on the writings of Hermann Kohn, who was a great German-Jewish philosopher. And, um, and the most important thing about the Rav was he had this Malamed, he had this Chabad rabbi who would sneak in Tanya when he was supposed to, teaching, he was supposed to be teaching him Talmud. This is a crazy story. About so what you're saying is the Rav was breaking his... Rebbeim's hearts too. His father and his grandfather. You know the story? The story is Rav Chaim Salvechik. Now, if anybody knows who Rav Chaim Salvechik, he revolutionized Talmud study in Eastern Europe. He was hands down the greatest Talmudic scholar in Eastern Europe. That was Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik's grandfather. Okay? He comes and he gives a faher. Faher is like a Yiddish word for it. He starts testing his grandson, who he knows is a prodigy and is brilliant. He's a little boy starts testing him on all the Talmud that he was supposed to have been taught. And he's not getting the answers right. And he realizes something else is going on here because what was happening? His Malamed, his teacher, was, was, uh, was teaching Tanya instead of Talmud. And he told his son, who was Rabbi Salvatric's father, no more of these tutors. 
you're teaching him yourself from now on. And his primary teacher for the next 10 years of his life, at least 10 years, was his father, Ramosha Salvechik. And they went through Masechtas. They went through tractates of the Talmud together. So embedded within Rabbi Salvechik's psyche and his brilliant mind was Tanya and Hasidus and Kabbalah. So when he later expounded upon Jewish philosophy, you know, it came out. It was there. Um, but it's interesting because people don't associate him with that kind of approach because his family, the Soloveitchiks, were referred to and are referred to this day as the great briskers of Brisk, which was a city and uh, which was a town in Poland known for its great misnagdim, anti-Hasidic rabbis who were all about Talmud and rationalism and not into all that sort of mysticism stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It seems that there is a tradition of sorts of um, uh, tampering down the spirit of those who are interested in that kind of stuff. I believe the same happened to the Ramchal, uh, mm. who, was a pas- who was a passionate Kabbalist. But uh, I, to my understanding, and I totally could be getting the history wrong that um, he dealt with um, other Rebbeim who, um, I don't know, some of his books were lost. Yeah, or, or some, yeah some so the, Ram, the Ramchal, Rebbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the author of the numerous pivotal works of Jewish philosophy, was a, was a, a real Kabbalist. But he made a deal that he would not reveal some of the Kabbalah. Um, you have to understand there was a lot of skepticism and negativity surrounding Kabbalah because when certain rabbis began to sort of reveal it, um, we believe Kabbalah is as old as Judaism. Yeah. I mean, my, my thought here is what it is. Is every Rebbeim's worst nightmare is someone takes on, the, takes on you know, learning Kabbalah and winds up on the streets of Spot? You know, like, <laughs> you know. Uh, there are worse things. My son spends a lot of time in Shabbat. In fact, three of my four kids are going to be there for Shabbat this coming weekend. Because my son Yehuda, who's turning 20, yeah. asked, what, w- what would you like for your 20th birthday present? Yeah. He said, I'd like to spend Shabbos in Shabbat. So we, we booked a Airbnb for my daughter, Avigail, for Yehuda, and for Yosef in Shabbat for this coming weekend, please God. Anyway, um, what were we just talking about? Oh, so the Ramchal. Yeah. So the Ram, Ramchal, he claims that he had a visit from an angel. And the angel revealed this Kabbalah to him. Now, you have to know the history. The, what was going on at this time was the Shabtai Tzvi Messianic um, false messiah situation. Wreaked terrible, terrible havoc in the Jewish community. Um, and a lot of Jews were turned off from Judaism. And when rabbis start hearing other rabbis espousing Kabbalah, it seems to smack of this charismatic leader with this, this new kind of wisdom. It's not a new wisdom, and they knew that, but they were very, very nervous that people would be taking it or they would take it in the wrong way. Now, if you ask Penny, if Penny was sitting here, one of my dearest friends, colleague here, has been on the MJ staff for 16 years, he doesn't deny the importance and significance of Kabbalah. He's just nervous that if it gets into the wrong hands, yeah. and who's the wrong hands? People not learn it. Sure. Yeah. I, 
so I mentioned to you, I, you know, I listened to the whole conversation that MGE had recently, you know, the whole, it wasn't really a debate. It was a discussion between the, the quote unquote rationalist perspective and the, um, Kabbalist, um, uh, perspective, at least in relating to God, you know, how do we understand God? How are we, how do we relate to God? How do you know, uh, is anyway, I left the conversation, I uh, almost upset. I, I, um, it seemed to me, it seemed to me that, uh, look, people are trying to connect with something larger than themselves today, whether people know it or whether they don't know it, everyone has this instinct to reach out, to, to grab something, you know, bigger than themselves, mm -hmm. because at a certain age in people's lives, they realize that it's, you know, the world doesn't revolve around them. Which is a, which for some people is a scary thing, um, and but what were you upset about? I was I didn't I didn't know what Rabbi Penny was offering and how somebody should relate to Hashem if it's not through this, you know, this understanding of Hashem that he's that he's that he's, he's inside of, of you, right. he's outside of you, you know, and you can connect with him, you know, so deeply because he's your soul is an aspect of him. It's not him, but it, but it's an aspect of him. So he believes, like he would say, and he did say that our souls reflect, you know, we're creating God's image. What does that mean? That just like God can reason, we can reason, we reflect certain aspects of God, but there's not a part of us that is God or is an expressive of God. Right. And so that is a little more of a, and I do believe that if you believe that, as Penny does, and I did for many, many years, then your relationship with God, I'm not saying necessarily, but will uh, often be more boring. Distant. Boring, just say it, Rabbi. Why it's is it boring. boring? Why is it boring? It's because because, because look, this is this is what I dealt with in in yeshiva, and I've and I've mentioned this to you a number of times. You know, building a relationship with the uh, with the halacha is an incredibly important and at times exciting thing, especially I think for young men who to, in today's world are seeking responsibility, mm -hmm. who connect with responsibility. Um, and, it, and it's so important to integrate uh, halacha into uh, Jewish law into oneself and to, you know, to build a relationship with the commandments because they build character, because they, because they build relationship with Hashem. But if it's just a relationship and a learning with the rules, this is my experience. This is, I'm gonna, mm. this is, this is, you know, I'm not saying this to judge anyone else. This is just me. If it's just a relationship with the halacha, um, then, then, you know, it's, it doesn't, it, it can hold. I think a relationship with the halacha can hold, but I think it's beauty that sustains um, and without, you know, digging through the underbelly of halacha and the underbelly of our relationship with Hashem, which I think right now is most accessible mm -hmm. through the Kabbalistic teachings, then, then, you know, your access to that beauty, you know, that colors is limited. That colors yeah. your world. That colors, you know, your 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 walk to work. That colors, you know, that that colors, you know, the words in, you know, uh, in your davening, in your, in your Gemara learning, 
in in your um, in the safers in the safe in the safari you're reading, uh, without that beauty, um, I d I don't know if for most young people today mm -hmm. that uh, this you know relationship with the, with their Yiddishkeit will sustain. It may hold for some time. Do, do you think there's something about today that's different than let's say? Hundred years. Yes, I do ago. because people's attention spans are so short. You know, we're so you know, this is happening in the you know, this is happening in the theater. They're they're they've been cutting intermissions, right. you know, and making shows two hours long because they, because they're you know they're worried about people walking out uh, you know in intermission or they're worried. You know, and this, and what this grabs people more, this grabs people quicker, faster than than let's say the more rational because somebody else might be. That's why I do teach both. Yeah. In my classes, yeah. Because anytime I, if I walk into a room, there are twenty students there. There's going to be a group of students that are more rationally oriented and want logical, rational explanations for things, not yes. mystical and esoteric. Right. Many students, many students want that, and I've met them at MJE. I've been in class with them. I've certainly been in class with them in yeshiva, and I love them very much. Right. And it's, and I am not judging their relationship with Hashem. Uh, but to you, but to you, it seems less exciting. To me, use the word boring. Yes, I use the word boring for I think for for what I for I imagine most people who may one day walk through the doors of NJE. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because in in other in other um, religious traditions, you know, I mean, this is one of the reasons why so many Jews are you know run off to to Buddhism. They run off. They run off to Buddhism. They run off to some of them run off to Catholicism. Right. Some, you know, they run off to other traditions that are, you know, so, you know, at least on the surface, you know, beautiful at entry point. Um, and I, I, you know, I when I say beauty, I don't just mean an aesthetic beauty. I mean in, you know, I mean in all surround sound mm -hmm. beauty. Um, <laughs> I understand fully encompassing enveloping beauty that i personally have experienced you know in the tiniest moments of my own even in learning it even in learning uh Gemara. no i i think it i think it needs you know i literally just had this conversation with my son who's in yeshiva in israel my my son who's 19 um who spends most of his day studying talmud and he likes it and he's good at it he's a bright kid and he's been well schooled in it yeah. So he's got the skills, but he feels that there's something missing. He does. Um, now, what we used to fill up with that something missing is that we would study Chumash. We would study Sukkim, verses from the Torah and the yeah. Parsha of the Week and the stories. And we would study some other great works of Jewish philosophy. And we would get a little, not a little, we would get a deeper understanding of the whys behind Judaism. Yeah. But it wasn't, an, it wasn't a Kabbalistic explanation. What's different today that we're seeing is that the Kabbalistic explanation is something people are seeking out. Not everybody likes it. Not everybody it doesn't resonate with everyone. Sure. Listen, I teach a Tanya class. I get a very nice group, but I don't get a lot of people because I think the ideas are a little not beyond them. It just it just doesn't resonate with everybody. Right. I, no, I, I I think you know. Obviously, I think that our tradition is so you know, incredibly expansive that, you know, there is a place for, for everyone in, in Torah. There is a, there is, there is that flavor of connecting more deeply 
with someone's Yiddishkeit. It, you know, it, it may not, you know, it may not be learning Gemara. It may not be studying and growing in Kabbalah. It may be something completely right. different that exists. Well, that's really, I appreciate you sharing that because that's really what is missing today. You know, I have a, an, my, there's an old buddy of mine, Rabbi Nadi Halfgott, who said to me that if you went into a classic yeshiva yeah. and you looked at the pictures of the sages on the wall, yeah. you would see all great Talmudic sages. Contemporary rabbis from Rabbi Soloveitchik, with Moshe Feinstein, da, 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 all these, you wouldn't really see, he said, a Baal Musar, someone who's known as like a great you know, ethicist, like Rabbi Yisrael Misalag, like you studied. You wouldn't see necessarily a Tanakh expert, like an expert on biblical studies, you know, from a Torah perspective. You wouldn't see a Baal Machshava, you know, and, you know, someone who's more of a philosopher. And that's changed a lot, I would say, in the last 30 years. Um, I see the curriculums because I have, I put four kids through, you know, Jewish day school and seminaries, yeshivot in Israel. And you see that yeshivot in Israel cannot get away with just studying and teaching Talmud anymore. They just... And um, because the generations have changed, the generation has changed. I think that the language today in um, 21st century is more aligned with spirituality and Kabbalah. I'm saying the language just in general, just the secular vocabulary on some level. On the other hand, people are still looking for authenticity. How do I know that this is true? Yeah. And most of the faculties that we're uh, we're used to dealing with. Yeah. To, to ascertain the truthfulness of something right. is logical reason. Right. This this was another thing that came up for me in listening to that conversation with um, Rabbi uh, Bortz and, and uh, Rabbi Penny was, you know, it was screaming in my mind, there is precedent for the Kabbalah. There is precedent for the Hasidish teaching. Why? Because most of the, most of the Orthodox world is Hasidish. Is that not true? The most of the Hasidic, you know, the you know the the Haredi worlds. I don't know about the numbers. It's 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 very large. But here's what there is in precedent. There is precedent of 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 popularizing it. Okay, that's really what. The oh debate yeah, is. yeah, sure. If you're getting into things like the Kabbalah Center, where you know, like where they're where it's you know, you're getting diluted uh, Kabbalistic teachings that aren't you know, for you know, for just right profit. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree, but I will say, though, that's really where the Pinney's argument, and it's a good one, I, I still disagree with it, is that you, you teach somebody um, astrophysics who never studied algebra, yeah. they're going to misunderstand it. And therefore, if you teach Kabbalah without people's belly being filled with the meat and potatoes of Judaism, then they're going to there's a risk of misunderstanding. What was Daniel Bortz's response? Remind me. His, his response was, there is such a danger. Yeah. There is such a danger, but the... Again, winding up on the streets of, of spot, you know, with, with, no, uh, no, 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 with no. a hookah. With, no, no. with, 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 uh, with the a big, blunt, as the kids but say. But everything in life, he said, is a cost-benefit analysis. And what's the bigger danger? Is that we just, we don't, we don't have interested students at all. We just have people who, whose Judaism is so blah yeah. and so dry and so lacking in meaning and inspiration that they, they don't come to the table anymore. They become the fifth child at the Seder, so to speak. You know, we've got four, four of them. Um, the proverbial fifth child, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but, but it's, um, and that's the concern. And 
I thought it was a great answer, which was like acknowledging that there is a danger in teaching Kabbalah to people that are less than learned. Yeah. So, um, but the greater danger is that if you don't engage people Jewishly, they're going to leave the fold. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing today a lot. Now, I'm not saying this the whole reason people leaving the fold. I think the biggest reason people leave the fold is because they were never in the fold. Yeah. And they were just never educated at all. I don't, unfortunately, consider most of our Hebrew school, after school, two, three days a week, a real Jewish education such that a person could say, well, I've considered Judaism. I've given it. Yeah. You know, that's, you know. that, that, that's, you know, when I finished my first year in yeshiva, this was my thing. I, I, I was shocked and mortified and amazed uh, at just beginning to understand everything I don't know. Like I was starting mm -hmm. to know, I was starting to at least come to, come to knowing what I don't know. <laughs> and what I don't know would take lifetimes of, of learning. And by the way, before you went to yeshiva, before you went to study and spent all day studying Torah, did you know that you didn't know? No. Right. No, I didn't know. I didn't know. What, what did I know? I'm, I, I, what, am I, what did I know? I was, a pitcher, so, I, was a, I was a pitcher. Right. This is why it's so fascinating because you only you only realize how little you know. Not you. All of us. That's okay. I don't. I'm, I, no. When I was eighteen, I I'm, was, a, I'm a self-proclaimed idiot, Rabbi. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, maybe self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed. You know, when I was eighteen, I was sitting in the back seat of my rabbi, and he was with his rebbetzin at the time. And I just spent the entire year learning. And he said to me, um, this is my rabbi, Shalim Biwell, Rav Aaron Bino. He has a very high voice. He speaks like this. He says, Mark, are you ready to go back? <laughs> and I said, because he knew I was leaving in a couple of days. And I said, Rabbi, I have to tell you, I'm very upset. He goes, what do you mean? I, he, I said, you know, I, I don't feel like I know enough to go back to college now. And... And he was, he let me finish. And I said, before I came to Yeshiva, you know, went to 12 years of Jewish day school, knew it all. I thought I knew everything. Now that I spent an entire year of just studying and just learning all day, I realized how little I know. And he yeah. turned back to me and he said, now you can go back. Yeah. That was, that was my goal. No, this is, I think it's a difficult thing sometimes to think back onto the environment that I grew up in uh, and to think about all the people who you know, who don't have a relationship with their Jewishness to think, you know, like, like I know, you know, I know, a, I know some people who they know they're Jewish, like, like it's an afterthought, like it's like it's just like they happen to know, like, like they, you know, they say, oh, yeah, my, my mother's mother was Jewish. They, but well, you know. growing up, let me ask you, Daniel, growing up, what was your when you did when at those moments when you would ponder your own Jewish identity, what, what was running through your mind? stick it in the back of my mind uh in a box and um uh and focus on other things that were catching my attention at the t look hmm. i grew up in i grew up in the theater i grew up in what you know what felt like and what and what feels like a spiritual expression mm -hmm. to, you know there is nothing like you know being in the moment on the stage having a relationship with, with the audience, with the, you know, with the play, with the other people on stage, you know, and being in, you know, I asked um, Rabbi Gershenfeld, who's our, our uh, 
wonderful, brilliant spiritual leader at the at Machen Yaakov about, you know, what, what does it mean to be an actor? You know, how, how do I understand this experience? And, you know, we kind of went through the Kabbalistic way of understanding this experience of an, of an artist. Be in the moment. You know, if you have if you're a musician, if you're a performer, if you're, you know, if you're connecting in, a, in these kinds of ways, you, you know, that expression, that, you know, that moments, those moments where nothing else exists except, you know, you in the zone of expressing that art, a Shakespearean soliloquy, you know, um, Bach, Beethoven, painting, uh, you know, that is a connection with Hashem, uh, uh, that flow. Uh, mm-hmm. that that's or at least that, that was the ex, that was the exciting ways of understanding it through through um, so you felt in a sense that you were tied in on some level on some spiritual level sure through your work sure so it's interesting you know, through, through you know through especially through Shakespeare um, you know highly em, highly emotional um, you know expressions of humanity I mean we don't begin to get this whole topic. I'll just say briefly that you know the reason one of the you know why why Shakespeare's complete works because you know in Shakespeare's complete works exists the full spectrum of the Yetzirah and the Yetzirotov the you know the man's inclination towards good and man man's inclination towards evil towards a you towards, feel his plays his plays his writings capture that capture that conflict. That, that world which is in which is humanity encapsulated in 37 you know complex plays so that's how, that's the way that i think back on on Shakespeare. Well, but, in, but anyway so i yeah i felt like i had a spiritual relationship in in you know in learning in and in growing in that art form and I still feel it, and I feel it, you know, in the audience. You know, you know when I went up to um, the Royal Shakespeare Company over Pesach break, hadn't been to the theater in a while because of COVID. Um, you know, uh, and you know, being in yeshiva, but you know, just sitting on the edge of my seat because I could feel what those uh, performers were feeling. Wow. Um, and yes, it was a spiritual connection. I think that I think that most actors, if they're honest. Performers, if they're honest, would express it in these kinds of terms. If what if the part they were playing uh, sure, or the words they yeah, were yeah, saying okay, sure. are they, touching you, on those issues? Yeah, you can I mean, you can totally be you know, you can totally be doing rote artistic work. You know, you can totally be like, I mean, yeah, it's like you know, I do it because I make money for it. I make I make money from it. It's a job. But anyway, to answer your question, to go back, I I didn't have a bar mitzvah. I would you know I was I was doing other things. I I was performing i i um but yeah judaism was an afterthought i think for most people even if they have a a lot of people have decent relationships with their you know with their liberal shuls um uh and i don't i don't say that derogatorily um but still you know after after time learning just the complete shock of the depth of the Jewish world, our learning, our thousands of years of literature, of teachers, uh, um, it like com- completely made me like still like like frozen like like it's daunting. It's daunting. Yeah. And 
it saddens me that 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 most of the Jewish world doesn't see that. Because if anything, if somebody's not going to relate to you know relate to their Yiddishkeit, if they're going to you know push it aside, um, or even if they believe that even they, look, people may think may may think and believe and hold that they have a beautiful relationship with their Yiddishkeit. Even so, you know, it makes me sad uh, that people might not know what they don't know. Right, right. I imagine it makes you sad too, as a... Well, that's why I started this place, basically. It's to put this before as many of our Jewish brothers and sisters as possible, just to get people... You know, because I think so much of Judaism... Don't you, want, don't you want to just want to grab a student and just shake him? You're like, you don't know! Like, you just, you don't know. I don't know all the things. Well, that could be I a don't new know. approach. We and could you hire don't know. you to do that. So let's not know together for, you know, about two years, and then I send you off to Yeshiva. <laughs> well, there's only... Well, you recognize the difference between New York and Jerusalem. I mean, you know. There's only so much we can do with our students here. Do you feel limited? I do feel limited in America. I do. I feel like... Sometimes I talk about Judaism here, and that's one of the powers of our heritage trip to Israel every summer, where people can actually see Judaism lived. Not that there aren't living, observant Jews in America. There are. But the, all the stuff we talk about where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked, and where the temple stood, and where the Mishkan was, if we can actually go to those places, and even just to see relics or historical archaeological evidence, that's a game changer for people because they see it's real. It used to be a t-shirt when I was a kid. Israel is real. And it was, I mean, this is I don't know, a little cheesy, but, but it, it really demonstrated that. Yeah. I mean, that's what's behind birthright. And why does the Jewish community pump so much money in getting American Jews to go to Israel? If Judaism is so awesome here, then why are we spending all of our because time? Because they want to... Jewish babies, Rabbi. Yeah. Okay. I want, we, we want Jewish babies too. That's a good goal. Yeah. Jewish babies are good things. Jewish babies, great. There's the camera. <laughs> Jewish babies, great things. Great people. They are. They're, they're, they're little, but they're really awesome. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to touch upon, yes. so I was listening to your really great interview on the uh, Orthodox Conundrum about Kirov, you know, which is... What you do. You Outreach. Know, I, you know, I, I never heard that word before until... Some it, people don't like that word. Do you know that? Why? They seem... They think that it... it the word Kirov, which literally means to bring somebody closer, seems to smack of like sort of Jewish evangel... Uh, help me. How do I say the word? Evangelism? Evangelism. You like you proselytize. Like we're proselytizing. You feel we're like... supposed to be an, above that. We're too intellectual and academic for that. Yeah. We don't... That's for our Christian cousins and brothers and sisters. Um, and Kiro, now I'll tell you the reason people are uncomfortable with the word Kiro. By the way, in my own community, and I'm not happy about this. Yeah. I've hired people or tried to hire people who say, I'd rather use the word Jewish outreach, Jewish engagement. Kiro seems to imply that I'm over here and the other Jew I'm trying to makarv is down there. Yeah. And I need to save their soul by plucking them out of the, the depravity of their <laughs> life and, and save them by bringing them to MGE. Right. So, first of all, what I tell people is that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we are bringing people closer to Judaism. We are. And that doesn't imply that the person who's bringing someone closer to Judaism is closer themselves. Right. Yeah, Rabbi Gershenfeld, 
uh, another shout out answers this. You know, <laughs> He's getting a lot of good answers, plugs for answers this. this question as well. Yeah. You know, people, uh, I think he said he was asked once. You know, are you just are you just trying to make you know black hat Shabbos observant Jews? I'm like, no, I'm trying to help people, um, you know, actualize their full potential. Well, I think that's accurate. I, I think he's trying to do that. Yeah. I think it'll probably make them happier if they put on a hat. Yeah, gotta have. Now, hat. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't really go for the whole hat thing. I respect people who wear them, but that's not my. But I. You don't think it's stylish, Rabbi? It's very not stylish. Oh. I mean, it looks like it's. It's not. I mean, it's not why people are wearing them, especially when it starts raining and they put like the plastic on it. You've seen that? Very unattractive. It's a gangster. You know, it's a, you know, it's the hats that, that gangsters used to wear. Right. I know. It looks like you know. Oh. It's like the Jewish mafia. Wait. Speaking of, I want to get back to this cure thing. I want to tell you something, yeah. something about gangsters. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. They, so I was learning. So I on Thursday nights I learned with. Um, some uh, a couple of the Lakewood guys on on Zoom. Um, Lakewood is a uh, very very uh, from uh, community in Orthodox 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 community in New Jersey. Anyway, so okay, so are you familiar with the movie A Bronx Tale? Oh yes, I remember a great movie. Okay, so I brought with 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 my nice good from from uh, Orthodox from birth Chavruta. Uh, uh, I brought up. A Bronx Tale. I want to tell you how I, how this happened. Okay, so we were learning. Um, so Eliezer has the whole test for um, you know for for finding you know the uh, the uh, finding finding a nice young Jewish woman. Um, for um, uh, can you help me out with the story here? Yeah, uh, Isaac is of marriageable age. Yeah, um, Abraham is concerned that if he doesn't meet you know Mrs. Wright. They're not, he's not going to be able to perpetuate this new monotheism he's brought to the world. So he sends his trusted servant Eliezer to go find a shidduch, basically a soulmate for right. Isaac. Right. And the big controversial thing, you know, at least you know, with what we were trying to learn in our Chavrusa session was whether or not the test that he gave was appropriate. Mm-hmm. To you know, is, is she? He's going to go up to a well, and if she says you can drink from the you you know you, and he asks, can I drink from the well? And she says you can drink from the well, and also your camels. No, but I'll and I'll help you. Yeah, I'll yeah, help you, and yeah. and your camels can you know can drink as well. So, and if that happens, then she's the one. Then she's the, she's she's the one. And the and that's know, a we, nice criteria. Yeah, that no, it's a great criteria. That? You're trying to fi- you're trying to find a beautiful Jewish woman with giving, the, with, with the giving. with the gift with giving yeah. character. You know, uh, you know. Um, anyway, so, uh, the Bronx tale, the, the Bronx tale, this made me think of the Bronx tale. This is where I brought it up. This is great. So, okay. So in a Bronx tale, you have a, you have a big, big, you know, gangster who takes a young, a take, takes a young guy under his wing. Um, and he, so the young guy is going to go on, he's going to go on a date and the, uh, on a first date. And the gangster, this is the sixties. So, so this is, uh, this is going to help explain the cars. Uh, the young guy's going to go on a date and the, and the gangster says, look, you're going to open the door for her in the, uh, to the car she's, and, and she's going to get in. Uh, and if she then reaches over to the oh, driver's side door and yeah. unlocks the door before you get to the driver's side door, she's the one. If not, forget about her. Forget that's, about that's her. a Bronx. That's great. Yeah. And then I said, it's this is this is Torah. That's it, man. This oh, is I love Torah. it. That's, that's, I love it. That's um, adorable. So anyway, so back. Uh, so Kirov, yeah, outreach. Yeah. What were you, what was your question about it? I do believe in it and bringing Jews closer. But here's my philosophy in a nutshell: yeah. you go to a good movie, you read an excellent book. Yeah. 
um, and you have a good friend. What do you tell your friend vis-a-vis -vis this book or the movie? You tell him to go see the movie, go read the book. Now, if you don't tell him to go see the movie or read the book, either you don't really care about your friend so much, or you don't think it's such a good book or movie. Those are the two options. So I'm saying, my suggestion is, if you really believe in Judaism and you love it, why would you not want to share it with other people? Especially because God commands you to do that. It's in Leviticus in chapter 19 um, that we're supposed to share Torah with others. Rabbi, has any student ever approached you and expressed to you that they felt that they were simply an object of MJE's attempts to Kirov? No, we, we do a pretty good job with that, I must say. I've, I've had other people who've come here. I don't want to sound too self aggrandizing, but I've had people come to MGE from other organizations and told me that they felt like an object elsewhere. Now, I will tell you it's tricky because we are, to be fully transparent, we are trying to inspire greater observance, knowledge, and commitment in our students. We are. I, 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 Rabbi, I tell you're people an evangelizing, proselytizing. No, so I don't think that makes me a, I don't think that makes my students into objects. What that does is that makes me a believer of Judaism and, yeah. and wanting and caring enough about my students that I want to share that with them. Yeah. I, I don't feel as though that I have been manipulated, in a, you know, in, in any way from my learning with you, you know, or with the Rebbeim at MJE. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've grown at times, I've grown insecure and, and look back at, you know, look back at moments and be like, was, you know, was I being, manipulated was i go was you know was was i not being seen was it just the pat was it, was it just was i on some convey was i on some conveyor belt <laughs> right. that, you know and if i didn't get off the conveyor belt that the, the at the time that somebody else wanted me to get off the conveyor belts was i going to disappoint someone that was my for some reason that was the my biggest fear was disappointing you know someone that i wouldn't that i wouldn't reach right the, disappointing the, us yeah, disappointing you. I mean, there was a woman that came here years ago. Very smart, I remember. She was a Yale graduate. And she was coming for about six months, very regularly, to the Minion on Shabbat, to classes during the week. And she then she disappeared. So I got together with her. We, we got together at Starbucks. And I, you know, in a nice way, I was asking her, like, everything okay? Like, where you been? And she said, no, Rabbi, everything's fine. I just decided I'm not interested in becoming observant. I said, okay, I'm disappointed to hear that, but you didn't answer my question, where you've been? And she said, I just assumed that because I'm not going to be religious, that you wouldn't want me coming around anymore. And I was like, whoa, whoa, back up the truck here. Did I ever say, did anyone on my staff ever imply even that if you weren't going to sort of become Sabbath observant or whatever, that you don't belong here anymore? She goes, no, 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 I just assumed. And now that, you know, I, I'm sharing this story because that helped me, and I share this with my whole staff a million times, that often people are thinking that. Yeah. But that's not really what being a rabbi and a teacher is. We have this thing called free will. People are going to make their own decisions. All we can do is get in front of people with this great wisdom and Torah and try to inspire them to study to learn, to grow, to commit. Um, they're going to either do it or they're not. We don't really control that. You know, and being, you know, and, and believing that we do control that is, is a level of arrogance, I think.
Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, I think it, for me, it turned into my own insecurity, especially when I was thinking about going off to yeshiva in that like five day period where I made the decision to go off, you know, you know, am I, am, am I on that conveyor belt? Mm-hmm. Am I, am I going to disappoint Rabbi Wiles? Am I going to disappoint, you know, the people who are helping me go to yeshiva? You know, I'm just going there to learn. I don't, I don't know anything about, you know, um, where I want to be. I just know I'm, you know, happy learning right now. Um, and I, again, I never felt like I was being. I mean, you know, you know who was the best at the late and great Lubavitcher Rebbe, Schneerson, and it's it's in, it's in here. It's yeah. in the Tanya. He was the best at convincing an entire generation that your job is not to get somebody to become religious. Your job is to engage them Jewishly. And what they do with it is entirely their own decision. Rabbi, this can be a question that we yeah. end on. We don't have to answer the question. Um, it's a conversation I have with uh, my best friend back from high school. Um, let's say somebody, he's, he's curious about his Yiddishkeit growingly, um, asking questions, struggling and wrestling, you know, which is a great place to be. Someone's wrestling. Yeah. Um, and he, and one of the questions that we ask is, look, what if I feel like I have a relationship with Hashem? And he's not telling me to, you know, he's not telling me to, you know, do this and don't eat that. And, you know, and, and I feel like I, you know, I, you know, I, I go off and I, I have spiritual experiences, you know, I, whether I'm doing in, uh, an organized ayahuasca ceremony in Peru or, you know, or I'm, you know, going on these uh, psychedelic meditations of sorts. And I feel like I'm connecting with something right. bigger than me. Right. And I, and it feels real to me and I can, f- and I feel a strong internal sense to me, but he's not, but you know, and I believe that that's Hashem. Right. And then, you know, how, how do you, how do you communicate with someone like that? So, who is, who is, so I, I mean, first of all, you have to validate people's legitimate feelings yeah. and respect them. But that's where the other rational aspect, this is coming full circle, our conversation, because you have to, um, I think, make a case for the authenticity of Judaism. Yeah. Why is why do we believe there's a God? And why do we believe that that God is responsible for the Torah? And really desires, on whatever, whatever that means for God, to desire us to fulfill his will and carry out his commands and bring this light of Torah into the world. That's why I think we can't throw out, as excited as we get about Kabbalah and Hasidus, we can't throw out the rational. Because the rational is going to be able to enable me, even if I can't prove it, and I can't. Yeah. I, don't, I don't pretend that you can prove God's existence or the divinity of the Torah, but I do believe you can make a, a very solid rational case, such as, so, so much so that I believe it makes more sense to believe in it than it doesn't. The 51% rule. I call it. And um, that's what I'm arguing in my book. And that's all I think we, we, we need to make a case for, because I don't think, you know, there is, you know, concrete evidence, if you will. Now, there is some really good archaeology in Israel that goes way beyond 51% for a lot of the things that the Torah says and speaks about. And you'd have to really, uh, at a purely logical and rational level, have a much better explanation than just the facts on the ground is the way I see it. So I think my answer to that person would be to explore from a rational perspective why Torah is true. 
why I think Torah is true. You think a rational perspective would be the way for someone who's connecting to what they understand to be the divine through, um, through guided meditations? Not necessarily, but you, the person you're describing is someone who's already finding spiritual relevance and, and it's resonating spiritually in some other kind of system. Yeah. So to show that, no, you can, that, 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 to bring them away from that into Judaism by showing you can have the same thing with us. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to have the same thing with you? I already have it. It's fine the way I am. Why do I need to transition to some other system? Because I'm Jewish? Because my mother was Jewish? That's not good enough. I think the answer to that is because as beautiful, as wonderful of experiences and feelings you're having, they're not based on truth. They're based on a system which is not founded on... Now, good luck. luck. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is easy, but we do have the whole mass revelation thing. and We do have some archaeological evidence. And we do have thousands of years of Jewish tradition of a lot of really smart people believing in this kind of thing. I think we can make a very good rational case. But I'm trying to deal with the person you presented. Ted. Yeah, sure. And you presented someone who's already happy spiritually, yeah, emotionally. Fulfilled in, in fulfilled. some ways. Fulfilled at least to the extent that they believe yeah. that they, they... You have to get that person to see that what's fulfilling them spiritually is not rationally, as rationally based truth as Judaism is. That is not a simple task, but I, I, I think that's, that's the way to go for that Jew. Okay. For a lot of other Jews, as we touched on before, what's going to excite them is not the rational. What's going to excite them is that they can have this beautiful relationship through Kabbalah and Hasidus, and they're tapping into a part of themselves and everything we discussed earlier. But, um, but for this person, already has that feeling. You know. Excellent. So... Uh... For your listeners, I just want to uh, thank thank them for joining us along on our journey, which went all over the place. <laughs> um, and for the next time Rabbi Wilds and I and all of you meet, he is going to be um, finding me a wife. Boom. Amen. Excellent. From your mouth. And anyone who's listening to this, if you can be helpful in that journey of finding Daniel a wife, please let us know immediately. <laughs> Excellent.